Hi, I'm Vicki Abelson. Please join me for The Road Taken, celebrity maps to success for those of us still seeking ours. Tuesdays, 6 p.m. Pacific Time, 8 Central, 9 p.m. Eastern on Conversations Radio Network. Vicki Abelson. I wrote a book called Don't Jump. Andy Stone is my heroine, and she was addicted to everything pretty much except heroin. Oh my God, oh yes! She just totally captures the excitement of, of rock stars. And famous athletes and famous comedians. Sort of an insider's view from the outside. The warmth and wit of Vicki's writing knocked me out. In, in a good way, not, not like Cosby. Too soon. Vicky wrote a book? Vicki Abelson's long-awaited new book, Don't Jump, is finally here. Don't miss it. Available on Amazon. Welcome to Vicki Abelson's broadcast, The Road Taken. Vicky's the creator and host of the renowned celebrity-driven literary salon, Women Who Write, and the author of Amazon bestseller, Don't Jump. Here's Vicky. So, Justin, I'm excited because tonight we're going to talk to Rob Morrow, who's actually become a friend of mine. He's an amazing human being because he always says yes. You know, and I've been trying to be a yes person because I find that the more I say yes, the more the doors open and the more opportunities there are. And where do you go from no? From no, it's, it's, that's it. You're done. It's over. But when you say yes and you open that door, any door, it leads to the next one, and the next one, and the next one. And Rob is someone who, no matter what I ask him, no matter when I ask him, he always says yes. And you know, they say, if you wanna get something done, ask a busy person. And this guy is unbelievable. I mean, he's everywhere. He's acting, he's directing, he's writing, he's playing music. And yet, when I call him up and I say, Rob, would you open for me a book soup for my, my first reading? Yes. Rob, I'm doing this music reality show. Would you? Yes. Rob, um, I'm having this book launch. Would you? Yes. I'm doing this radio show. Yes. And he just always says yes. 
And first of all, it creates incredible goodwill. Do you know anybody like that, Justin? You have anybody like that in your life? Have you dealt with anyone like that? Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of that way. And then also, uh, my mom also is definitely that way, where she just will not say no to anybody. And has it ever, do you, okay, because you are that, I have limited experience with you. We have a new relationship, but has it ever backfired for you? Have you ever regretted saying yes? It has before, just because sometimes there's so much going on. And Mm -hmm. when you say yes to somebody and then you said yes to something else, and it's just you have to figure out how you're going to do both in the little bit of time you have. So it definitely has backfired before. Except I think, and I think you're a fatalist like I am, we've discussed this before, that there are no accidents and there are no mistakes. So if we say yes to something and it means we can't do something else, then I believe we're meant to do that thing we first committed to. And that's going to take us to the place we're meant to go. That's just my belief. And oh, also, sure. you know, if, if we say yes to two things and now it means we're jammed and we don't get to do something fun and we're going to do these two things. I don't know. I just always think something good comes out of it. Yeah. Like, you know, I was we were talking uh, last week, you know, I got into that car accident and they totaled my car, I found out. And I had to get a new car. And I went kicking and screaming because I loved my 11-year-old Honda Civic EX Special Edition. I didn't want a new car. And I didn't want the expense of the new car. And I got to send my daughter to college. And who needs monthly, you know, my car was paid off. And now I'm going to have monthly payments. And who needs this crap? But I've had the car since Friday. And first I was complaining because the radio wasn't, isn't as good. The EX Special Edition had a really great radio. It sounded great. And this hmm. radio, even though it has eight speakers, doesn't sound as good to me. Okay. But it came with Sirius for a few months. Oh, my God. Underground Garage, Little Stevens Underground Garage, maybe the best radio <laughs> I have ever heard. In my, I am addicted. I always talk on the phone when I'm in the car. I don't talk on the phone anymore. I just want to listen what they're playing. The DJs are great. They're informed. They play eclectic mixes and so I'm starting to I'm still driving like I'm 90 because I'm overly cautious and freaked out but I'm starting to enjoy the ride and anyway I just think something good always comes and there's a reason for everything and that saying yes and being a person like Rob opens the universe to just all that's possible and it creates a lot of goodwill I can't imagine there's anybody on the planet that doesn't love Rob Morrow that would have anything but good things to say about him. I just can't even imagine. And, okay, so let me tell you a little bit about Rob, as if we don't know. But Rob is a three-time Golden Globe and two-time Emmy nominee for his work on Northern Exposure. He starred in Numbers, was featured in Quiz Show, Mother, The Bucket List, and was recently seen as Barry Sheck in The People vs. O.J. Simpson. And I got to tell you, maybe the best television miniseries, whatever they call it, that I've ever seen Everybody's work was stellar, uh, nominated for a gazillion Emmy Awards, rightfully so. He's had recurring roles on Billions and Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll, and he's currently directing a lot of this season's The Fosters. Rob is a founding member of the Naked Angels Theater Company and is a longtime board member of Project ALS, a cause near and dear to his heart. He is also an active member of the Creative Coalition, a premier nonprofit social and political advocacy organization that helps to educate and mobilize leaders in the arts community on issues of public importance. Rob's a writer, a songwriter, a musician who, with his partner Carlos Calvo, opened for Mickey Dolan's In My Living Room. Anyway... He is the first person to say yes, as I said. He's just a yes man in the best possible way. It's my pleasure, my thrill 
to uh, to welcome Rob Morrow. So, Rob, meet uh, Justin Levins, my uh, my producer. Hey, how's it going, Rob? Hello. Um, just, Good. How are you? Good. Justin, uh, did you see the Foo Fighters Sonic Highways by any chance? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, fabulous. Well, Justin was the sound engineer, and he won an Emmy for that. Oh, cool. Congratulations. Uh, yeah, I saw Dave, uh, I don't know, about a month ago. He was uh, playing with um, Zach Brown Band. Oh, Zach Brown Band, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and I went back and said hi to, I know Dave, uh, so uh, he, I love that show. I told him, actually, I hadn't seen him since I was on. I told him how much I liked it. Okay, so Rob, so you are... The most extraordinary, I've said this before, Rob just recently visited Women Who Write um, in the living room, and a lot of what we talked about that day, I want to go over today for the for the people out in, in Cyberland, because it was amazingly interesting and helpful to me and to everyone in the living room that day. But you're somebody that whenever I've asked you to do anything, including this show today, which you're at Vassar or something, you're teaching? What are you doing right now? Yeah, there's a... Uh theater company called New York Stage and Film that has been coming to Vassar. They take over the Vassar campus every summer for 30 years, and I've been coming for 29 of those years. And uh, it's a very cool kind of institution at that point. Everything from Hamilton was up here last year or two years ago, and uh, uh, The Humans, and you know, a lot of Broadway hits and off-Broadway hits, and um, my old girlfriend, who's my best friend, one of my best friends now, runs it. Um, and, uh, you know, they're, they, uh, they foster a lot of talent and give a lot of uh, people uh, workshops to, to develop material. And uh, I'm here uh, for a week mentoring um, some, some writers on some screenplays. And is that what you do each year when you're there? You mentor? I've never done that before. No, I usually uh, work in something. You do like an act of a play or, you know, or I made my first short film under their auspices up here. Well, I, I believe John Patrick Shanley has workshop things, has done stuff there. Is that true? I think so. Uh, yeah, a lot of, most of Shanley's plays workshop up here for sure. Yeah. Like, that's you know, I remember when, when we first started, he was doing his first plays ever here. Amazing. That's so fabulous. And okay, so you bring up mentorship. So let's go there first. Did, did you have a mentor? Did you have somebody who guided you? You know, n- not so much uh, that they were conscious of. A lot of kind of, I don't know, kind of quasi-mentors that I admired and, and, and studied. Um, but, I, I had, you know, Redford was a mentor for a little while. Um, Mr. Robert I Redford? I talked about that. Uh, yeah, I talked about that in your... Uh, yeah, but the people out thing. there in Cyberland, they didn't get to hear you in the living room. So I'm going to ask you a lot of those same questions because they were fascinating. So Robert Redford mentored you. How did that happen? Well, he cast me in this movie quiz show and Phenomenal. we became friends. And he was a hero of mine. So, you know, I was I was looking for some guidance. And, uh, you know, we hung out a lot for a couple of years. And, uh, wow. and he, he advised me on things. So tell the, the radio audience what he suggested you do. I, I love this. He suggested, I, I asked him if I should leave Northern Exposure, and he said, yeah. <laughs> and uh, as soon as I heard that, that was it. <laughs> um, from him. And, and why did he suggest that you do that? He thought I was going to work a lot in the movies, which didn't turn out to be true. And... Uh, you know, I think he believed in me, and he wrote me the sweetest letter when a movie, uh, when I didn't get a nomination for, uh, I have all these letters he wrote me. He wrote me this letter just, uh, that was just so sweet about, you know, my not getting uh, a nomination. Not that I necessarily expected one, but um, it was just, uh, it was really nice. 
He seems like a sweetheart. So he advised you to, to leave Northern Exposure, which you did, in because he thought you were going to get a lot of movies, and that didn't pan out. So what happened in that time period when you were sort of, did you have regret? Were, were you? No, because I did some movies, you know. I, 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 I was kind of worked, um, but, you know, I didn't really become a movie star. Um, you know, I just started doing all kinds of stuff. I started directing, and then I went on to another series, and... Um, and my career just kind of went where it went, it didn't, but movies weren't. You know, I do movies, I almost call it, I do them as a hobby. I do a lot of movies. <laughs> yes, you do. You're in a lot of movies, and Justin was just telling me before we went on air, Justin, what did you watch last night? Oh, I just saw um, Begin Again. Yeah, that's a perfect example. Um, actually, those yellow sunglasses are on me right now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's an example of... You know, it was one scene. I had worked with this guy, Lance uh, Daly, who was a really terrific director. I made a movie with him called um, The Good Doctor, and he was pals with John, the director, and they just kind of said, would you come do this? And because it was about music and because I love those guys and it was a scene with Kira Knightley, who I've always had a crush on. <laughs> I was She's like, gorgeous. I was like, yeah, sure, why not? And it turned out to be such a fun experience, you know, because they basically let me go. And I, you know, I, I had lived most of that. And I'm always looking for opportunities where people will let me kind of input on what's going on. So those are fun little gigs, you know, they don't, they're not necessarily big or important, but they're fun to, they're fun to just, I, you know, especially if I've been directing a lot, I just sometimes feel like I need to keep my acting muscle going, you know. Absolutely. And you are directing a lot now. You've been doing the Fosters like crazy. I've been doing the Fosters and then I'm off to uh, do um, NCIS New Orleans and, and two in a week. And are you, are you performing on Billions again? Are you doing that? And I'm performing on Billions. I just did an, uh, two episodes last week and uh, I think I'll probably do some more of those. And how about sex, drugs, and rock and roll? Sex, drugs, and rock and roll? I don't know. I was really bummed because that was one. That to me is the kind of part and the kind of show I wish I could lock myself into a long term tell, on. You were so great on that show. You were so fabulous. I don't know what happened, man. It was supposed to be like Dennis was like it was. You know, they enticed me with that it was going to recur. Right. And uh, I thought it went so well, and uh, it just didn't happen. You know, I don't know. Why. But I hope maybe uh, maybe next season. But I haven't watched the new season yet. Have you? I just I I started to watch the first. You know, to be honest, I love Dennis Leary. Um, Rescue Me, maybe one of my in in my top five shows of all time. All time. Did you did yeah. you watch Rescue Me? Um, I did. Well, I watched it. You know, I wasn't a devotee, but I mm -hmm. certainly appreciate it. Well, a lot I of shows that I I sample and really like, but I don't live with. Right, and and I tend to not watch a lot of shows, but when the ones that I do, I become obsessed with, and that was one. Right. Well, I'm a twelve stepper, so that show really spoke to me because I think the way they handled addiction was the most realistic thing I've probably ever seen. And uh, it's a real issue for Dennis. That's why it's so yeah, you know, good. I mean, I want to talk about you, but they did this one brilliant thing. It's one of my favorite things that's ever been on television. The, uh, Dennis's character calls his sponsor, and he's, say, he's he's looking in a bar, and he wants to go in and have a drink. And his sponsor talks him off the ledge, and they hang up their cell phones, and then the camera pulls back, and the sponsor is standing front in front of a bar, coveting, wanting to go oh, in. And it's like, that is like oh, exactly great. what the situation, that's the real thing. But anyway, so sex, drugs, and rock and roll for me, not for me. Me, that series, I love Dennis, and I pretty much like everybody on it, John Corbett and and uh, Elaine Hendricks. But 
for me, that show, I don't know, didn't really resonate for me until you came on. I loved that stuff. You were doing. I, I'm telling you the Thanks. truth. I loved your character no, on there. character. I, I thought, I was like, I thought it was going to I don't, I don't exactly understand what the deal, why that didn't go further. I thought that character could have really brought a lot of life to it. But, uh, yeah, it was a very interesting. We'll see. I haven't, I'm looking forward to, to checking out the new season. Yeah, I've just seen one so far and I don't know. I'm, I'm not, I, I, I don't stop watching. I'm watching. I'm watching. I'm, I'm waiting, right. but yeah, it's, Anyway, so, okay, so you've done the movies, you've done the TV. Let, let's go back, though. Where did the ambition start? I mean, at what point in your life did you know this is what you wanted? Did you always know you wanted to do this? No. You know, in retrospect, there was probably writing on the wall. Like, for instance, in fourth grade, you know, my friends and I would do kind of quasi-performances in the schoolyard of West Side Story because it would come on television every year, and mm-hmm. we would get, like, ice cream sticks as knives and kind of play the characters. And then in my neighborhood, we all played kind of lost in space. We would wear like velour shirts and <laughs> pants and, <laughs> and, and boots and run around. And, and then in sixth grade, I was, you know, somehow ending up on stage. And, and, and actually, even earlier than that, in, sec, in second grade, I think it was, a friend and I somehow left the class, went to the music room, took some instruments, and went to classrooms said that we had permission to come and perform. And we got through about two or three classrooms before they realized that, A, we didn't, and B, you know, we, yeah. So, so there was, a, there was definitely writing on the wall, but I wasn't conscious of it until I watched the movie Grease. And uh, ah. I was 15, and I just was, it just hit me in the middle of it, like, fuck, that's what I want to do. And, and the cool thing is, that's the synchronicity of all this. Like, there's so much synchronicity in, in, my life and career and you know I've, I worked with Travolta recently and and uh I worked with him once before we we developed a project and I wouldn't say he's the reason I'm an actor but he was a huge catalyst and to find yourself you know working with them not only that but we got along so well you know to act with the person who inspired you is just a it's like the universe just giving you a little nod saying yeah you're you're on the you're on your path if you know if you have one <laughs> so so it was Greece that did it because for, for me Saturday Night Fever well you might be too young for that to have been to resonate for you no Saturday Night Fever was after Greece oh, oh was it really are you I sure so. no I think Saturday no. Night Fever came first I think um I think Greece yeah but okay. may, whatever I mean they were yeah, no, I think it was Greece, but you you look it up. But but I think it was Greece, and uh, either way, Saturday Night Fever had a big pack, impact on me. But I, I have a feeling I already knew at that point because I used to I would go to school with a a bandaid on my face and say I cut myself shaving. <laughs> <laughs> so you loved Greece. So did you want to do musicals? Did you have you ever done a musical? I did one or two music. I did a few musicals. Yeah, and um, actually, oddly enough, my first lead I got, which was shortly thereafter, was a high school production of Fiddler, which I just saw a couple nights ago in New York. H- how um, did you like it? Because my, my mother loved I, the new production. I was in it years ago, million years Who ago. did you play? I was, this is really embarrassing, but it was like my first uh, community theater show, and I was sprintsy. I had the first line of the play and maybe one other line, and then I was uh-huh. one of the, I was one of the sisters, right? So I sang in all the songs, but I like had no dialogue. It was ridiculous, yeah. Yeah, I love this production so much. So did my mother. Beautiful. Ah. I thought it was so beautiful, and they were the acting was just great. The direction, the concept, it was just lovely. I was so uh, I was so excited to see it. I heard it was a very modern take. 
You know, it's modern. It's definitely, it's not like super modern, but it's modern. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's bookended by a, a kind of a modern device, and it's uh, uh, aesthetically, you know, it's it's minimal um, and suggested kind of, but it didn't feel like overwhelmingly modern. It mm-hmm. just felt contemporary, I guess. Or I saw the version maybe 10 years ago, and it, it didn't work for, it, it was a different take on it also. That one was very dark. And it felt yeah. too dark to me. I just, I've recently met John Savage and he was in the original production with Bette Midler on Broadway when she played, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. No way. Yeah, John Savage was like the, was like Perchick or something. He was the non- Get out of here. No, he was the non-Jew. Wait, with, with, with whoever the, Chava marries uh, the non-Jew. Uh. Yeah, uh, not Perchik. See, now I can't even remember. I can't believe I can't remember. But whoever the character that she marries, he was that one. Yeah, he was That's in the original so production. Funny. Isn't that great? Yeah. So who I, want, I want to do it on Broadway. I want to do Chelsea on Broadway. Oh, you've got to wait a few years and you got to gain a few pounds. Who who were you when you did it back then? Tevia. You were Tevia? Get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> That's what the thing was. I got leads right away. Wow. You know? and, and also, I, I could do a pretty mean zero mustel for a 14 year old. And I have the tapes, you know, still. Um, That's so and great. It, you know, it's not like it was great, but it was definitely like a pretty good job for a 14 year old. Okay, so now. Did you start out in music? Because you're, um, I know you as a musician as well as an actor. What was your first passion between the two? What came first? Well, drums was the first thing ever. Drums started when I was really young. Drums? How, and, how did uh, drums happen? So my parents were separating, and I must have been about five. And my mom went, took us to L.A. for some reason. She had an aunt. Um, I don't exactly know why we went out there just to get away, I guess. Where, where, where would, where'd you grow up? Westchester, okay. New York. Uh-huh. And uh, we were staying in some hotel in Hollywood, and uh, there was a band staying there down the hall. And I was so taken by them. And we'd go hang out, and they, you know, would, you know I was five. so They, they would let, let you hang these. out with them? Well, you know, for you know, whatever, twenty minutes, a half an hour here. That's you good. Know, yeah. When they were playing, they'd let me come watch them. They were rehearsing or something. I remember going in and and uh, playing the drums. And uh, I came home saying I want to play the drums, and I started taking lessons. And that became the foundation of pretty much everything I do artistically. I think. I think wow. everything I do, from writing to acting to directing to obviously music is rhythmic, you know, it all comes down to rhythm for me, you know, I mean, um, and so uh, I think that's, you know, where it started. Okay, so you were going from classroom to classroom and putting on little concerts, and then you were doing some little acting. Did you have a master plan? Did you have a goal? Did you have a path? Well, I had a raison d'etre, you okay. know, once, once um, I discovered acting, it was, I was aimless, I was in trouble constantly, I, I was getting kicked out of school or not, I didn't show up most of the time. I joke, but I don't think it's far from the truth that I didn't pass a test from the seventh grade on. <laughs> I took a GED, which I cheated on. Um, and, and to the chagrin of my father, who didn't realize what he was signing when I told him, I'm going to take this test. And if I pass, I'm going to be done with high school. And he was like, you know, yeah, you'll pass. 
And uh, I did pass because I cheated. And I came to him in September of my senior year, him thinking he had another you know, nine months to get my ass in gear. And I said, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm going to New York to become an actor. Wow. And, uh, you know, in retrospect, that was crazy. Um, that is amazing how it's worked out for you. That, that you're, you're like my biggest nightmare. My daughter's about to go to college. Like, oh, my God, please don't listen to this show. Yeah. You know, I mean, I advocate college, A, because if I had to do it again, I love to learn. I'm an, I'm an autodidact. I'm an intellectual, you know, and the luxury of four years to study. Mm-hmm. The problem was is that I did actually go for about a month to Plymouth State College in New Hampshire where my sister was going. And uh, I was on some kind of probationary. They would let me in. And all I wanted to do was meet girls and get drunk. And <laughs> somehow I knew it enough to say, you know, I was going to have to take out loans and get in debt and all this shit. And I was like, well, why? I knew I wasn't going to work. Mm-hmm. Whereas now I would kill to have that that time to just read and, and learn. So if, if since learning is important and you love all of this, what, what was the turnoff about high school? Well, I think I had learning issues and um, I don't know. I just was rebellious. And my daughter has a lot of those traits, but she's further along in terms of being smarter than me and doing better than me. But it's like I just wanted to do things my way, you know, for good or bad. And, and a lot of it was bad, you know. Was it an ego thing, do you think? Um, it was a bit ego, but I also think it's like somehow I got turned off. I think because I had learning issues that I couldn't quite figure, I couldn't do it, you know, and I just couldn't do it. And, you know, it was affecting my sense of self-worth, I mm-hmm. think. And so when I found acting, you know, so right shortly thereafter, I saw an ad for, um, they, were, they were casting extras for the movie Caddyshack. Oh my God! In in shooting in Florida, where I was living with my dad, and I went, and because I was a real kid, and I actually had caddied a bit, <laughs> and it's hard for them to find kids that could be extras that could miss school. I was willing to cut school, so I cut school. My dad said, "You're not cutting school," and I I left home and moved into my grandparents' house, who were living in Fort Lauderdale, near actually close to the set, mm-hmm. and I cut school for six weeks, and. Um, I'm an extra. I'm all over that movie. They're like a little fat version of me. And oh my god! Actually, we. Michael O'Keefe is a good friend of mine. Everywhere. I have to go back and watch it now and find you. That's... I was fat, and I had a, I wore. You will see me in a jean vest, <laughs> a, a jean vest, and also in like the pool scene, the famous pool scene. Uh-huh. I think I'm in a, a purple mesh. Uh, football practice jersey that's kind of cut halfway off. And, oh, my God. Um, I'm everywhere. I'm in that movie. But when when I was doing it, I became a bit of a mascot. <laughs> um, and they all were so nice to me. And um, I'll never forget Michael O'Keefe. Again, synchronicity. He became a friend, and we've worked together a number of times, I guess, now. He He's a good friend like, of mine, too. I love Michael. Lunch. This is crazy. Yes. Guy. He would put me on the lunch line and tell the people that I was the star of the movie, you know. <laughs> and, um, and then Brian Doyle Murray, who was Bill Murray's brother, who co-wrote the movie, handed me this. He said, hey, you know, you ever want to, um, you know, you ever come to New York? Give us, you know, come on up to SNL. And I was like, uh, so I took that and it was like the Holy Grail. It was in my wallet like gold. And, you know, it was about two years later where I ended up in New York City and I called him and he was like, yeah, I don't think he necessarily remembered me, but somehow he remembered me enough. He says, yeah, come on up, bring some pot. You know, and I was like, okay. And, uh. I show up, it's 1979, and John Belushi's walking around like a ghost. He's not on the show, but he's still there, half naked, walking down the hall. Like, I would 
come around a corner and there'd be Belushi walking by, like with his pants down, like a plumber's butt, you know. Oh my god! And I don't know what he was doing there, but he looked like he was out of it. And and Rodney Dangerfield was the host, coincidentally. And Rodney's and always in put, a bathrobe and slippers. Was he in a bathrobe and slippers? I don't know. Maybe he was. A, I remember the sketch I was in. He was a judge, and I was a juror. It was just an extra, and um, and then like fifteen years later, I end up hosting the show. Oh, that's and so great! I go in on Monday for my meeting with Lorne to get the lay of the land, mm-hmm. and actually that's where I met Dave Grohl because Nirvana was the band. <laughs> um, wow! And they trashed the set and got in a lot of trouble and all this <laughs> shit. But but I said to Lorne, uh, you know, I was on the show, and he was like, "What?" and uh, I think we worked it into the monologue, you know, that I like maybe was in some training program or, or so I can't forget, but you can get the monologue on YouTube. And um, I think they show, they show, I remember they showed a clip of, of me as an extra years before. That is so fantastic. I didn't realize when Brian Doyle Murray invited you up there, it was to be on the show. I thought it was just to sit in the audience. This is, this story's getting better and better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I was so excited because it was like the big leagues and you know, there I was. And, um, I'll never forget. Like, I left the show, uh, must have been one o'clock in the morning or mm-hmm. uh, when I was finished, and I took the train back to Westchester because I was living at my mom's, and uh, I don't know why. Oh, maybe it was a rehearsal the Friday night before, but so I had, um, I guess they put makeup on me, but you know how they put like tissues in your collar? Mm-hmm. Like I didn't take that off. I didn't want to take it <laughs> off because I thought it was so cool. So I, took, I think I took the train the whole way home with it. <laughs> in my collar. I love it. Okay, so now, so you're an extra on Saturday Night Live. You're an extra for six weeks in Caddyshack. You had a raison d'etre. How did you pursue it from there? What happened? Well, so then I show up in New York, and in typical fashion, this has been a pattern in my life. I do something before I know how to do it, you know? So I was like, I'm an, I said I'm an actor. I'm living in New York, but I wasn't studying. Mm-hmm. You know, the first year was pretty much about hibernating. Um, I was scared, I think. I was living in a, a part of my mom's uh, boyfriend's apartment because he was living with her in Westchester. So I was in there for about six months before, and I got a job in the in the usher in in the movie theaters mm-hmm. uh, in the Cinema Five chain. And um, I met this guy Toby Parker, who is Sarah Jessica's brother. Oh wow! And uh, we we became pals, and we ended up getting an apartment together and um was he also an aspiring actor he was already an actor he'd already been on broadway sarah was already an annie on broadway so i was enamored by them because Mm -hmm. they had they were there and he was doing an off-broadway musical called star mites and uh i went around and became the assistant stage manager and because again i was a real kid they Mm -hmm. they let me be the understudy Mm -hmm. which really just meant you know, filling in a rehearsal if someone couldn't be there or something, but it was a real taste of something. And, and I met my, my my lifelong friend, Fisher Stevens, there. Wow. And um, I started doing, you know, really shitty little plays. And How, how are you supporting yourself during this? What's that? How are you supporting yourself during this? I would take jobs, but they would last only as long as I could get the next free play. So <laughs> I would work for two weeks as a waiter, and then I would quit, and I would do a play for three weeks, and then I would take another job. I did, you know, I worked everywhere. I had so many different crazy jobs, delivering balloons, painting homes, uh, you know. Uh, eventually, I started to work, uh, get some work in the, in, the, in the technical, you know, doing like uh, assistant stage manager stuff. But it wasn't 
it was off off Broadway, so I'd get like five dollars a day, or they pay my lunch or something. And um, I just wanted to be near it. So anything I could do to be near it, which is what I advise people when they're trying to break in, is get get in the get get in the door. It doesn't matter what you're doing, just be around it. I mean, Caddyshack was an amazing experience for me because I got to watch how filmmaking was done. Mm-hmm. You know, I got to see it. And uh, I think that's very crucial is to get just to get in there and see what's going on. And uh, then my mom, to her credit, came and saw me in one of these terrible plays and said, you know, at that point, she knew I wasn't turning back. I mean, she, up till then, she was like, why don't you become a lawyer? But and, I was going to say, because lawyers you're, you're all a go Jewish... To acting school. They all take it all there. They have to act, too. And you could be an actor and a lawyer. <laughs> Meanwhile, I played a hundred lawyers and doctors, so it satisfied the quota for her. Um, I was going to say, because you're a nice Jewish boy, like, how did this sit with your parents, this ambition of yours? Were you getting pressure from home? Well, yeah, but I didn't care. I, you know, A, I knew in my gut, and it turned out to be that I was right, mm-hmm. that this was what I needed to do. This was the way for me to go. And it didn't matter what they, I didn't give a shit what they said, you know. And I think at a certain point, my mom realized that and said, you know, look, if you're going to do it, you better learn how to do it. Mm-hmm. And uh, she gave me some money to take classes. I went to HB Studios and started studying and, and then became a real study junkie for, you know, eight years or 10 years and started to develop the craft of acting and fall in love with the art of acting. But ironically, it was in after, it was after the fact, you know, it was, I'd already been doing it. And even by the time I got my first movie, mm-hmm. it was only about five years, four or five years in. What was your first movie? It was this ghastly thing called <laughs> Private Resort with Johnny Depp and me. Oh. And uh, terrible, uh, if you just, just awful kind of teen romp <laughs> of that was being made you know all the time back then and um, what year was that approximately that would be like 83 okay and, and you're approximately how old are you do while you doing this your first movie i think i was 22 and johnny was 21 i vaguely remember that but somewhere in that ballpark that's a pretty big success did you have a decent part in that i mean were you like paid i had the lead in it and i made 50k <gasps> which wow! was like a billion dollars oh, yeah. i mean it, it was crazy. How did you know, that happen? How did part. you get that? Well, I guess what happened, I guess I had some experience at that point. So what happened was I, I started doing these plays and I started working, I started to get a little bit of a name as a young kid, you know, an, a young actor in New York mm-hmm. and um, doing these plays at these theater companies like Ensemble Studio Theater and Circle Rep. And mm-hmm. I did one at Ensemble Studio Theater with Evan Handler. And um, it was a big splash. And um, William Morris came and signed me up. And um, oh. I guess they just sent, they started sending me out. And mm-hmm. I auditioned for it. And then they flew me out to L.A. for the screen test, which is where I met Johnny. I, and it was at the it was this guy, Ben Ephraim, who was this Israeli, you know, great old school producer, you know, schlock producer. Mm-hmm. And the screen test was on his tennis court in Brantwood. Um, and Johnny and I got cast. It was so cool because we were like, right before that, I got my first commercial. Yeah. As I was on my way, I was about to leave to go do that. And I got this commercial, a Chiquita Banana commercial, which is online <laughs> as well, I think. And that, oddly enough, was with me and one of the other Sarah Parker's sister, um, Megan, who has a different last name. There's like eight kids in that family, and four of them are Parkers and four of them are Forsties. And um, so I did this Chiquita banana commercial. Um, (laughs) I hated bananas. I had to eat like a thousand of them. And uh, then I went to Florida to make this movie. And Mm -hmm. I found myself in a a really cool resort. I 
can't forget the name of it, but it's pre- it's kind of famous in the Keys. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of kind of conservative types own homes there. And um, I found myself with Johnny Depp in this resort with like you know me and Johnny and 120 girls in bikinis. <laughs> And, uh, <laughs> you know, we had a good time. I bet you did. Okay, so now you ha- you've had a lead role in a movie. What happens after well, then that? I got, I got so disenchanted by the, the movie because of what it was, and you know, that I said, I'm never going to do a movie or a TV show. I'm just going to do theater. Mm. I went back to New York and, uh, and did a lot of theater for a while, and then... And a lot of commercials. That was the goal for me. I did one or two national commercials a year, which gave me thirty to fifty thousand wow. dollars, which was a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And um, I was able to, to, you know, start to kind of create a life for myself. And then uh, I got my first series, which was called Tattingers, and that was a, a Tom Fontana, Bruce Paltrow thing with uh, me and Stephen Collins, and uh, Blythe Danner, and uh, Jerry Stiller, and. Uh, Mary Beth Hurt, who is my love interest, oddly enough. Wow. So um, that was like, it wasn't very good, and it, it lasted about 12 episodes, and then I just kept doing theater, and, uh, and, and then, then Northern Exposure. Okay, so before Northern Exposure happens, you're on this trajectory, you're, you didn't love the movie that you did, you're doing a little TV, you're going back and doing theater. You talk about these stories about a certain kind of uh, I don't know if it's arrogance, you would say, but, you know, you didn't want to do this and you didn't want to do that. But the the Rob Mara that I know, you blow my mind because every time I've ever asked anything of you from playing at the launch of my book to opening for me at Book Soup to doing Women Who Write to you're just always like the first person to say yes, doing this radio show. You're the most accommodating. It's really hard for me. It's a disconnect for me to think of you as like an arrogant kid who... Yeah, you know, I'm not sure I presented it as arrogance, but, but and I'm not even sure it was arrogance, but I've definitely evolved into myself for sure. But um, I think that was all good. You know, I think it was good that I did that, that I came back and I didn't go... Live, move to Hollywood and uh, and and end up doing a lot of movies. I think that was a that was a smart move because I needed to learn more. You know, by the time I ended up on Northern Exposure, I was so confident. That's not to say I wasn't you know didn't have my moments and my doubts and fears, but I was really confident when I started making that show. You know, I knew what I was doing and I knew how to do it, and that's why I think working in the theater is really a great way for actors to learn, you know, it gives you a chance to really hone your craft. And so, you know, again, I think it was self-preservation. It wasn't being snooty, you know, it was me saying, this is not what I want to do. You know, I, I didn't want to do that kind of material. And, uh, I was able to kind of get on a, on a path that allows me to do some quality stuff. It sounds to me like your entire journey from the beginning was extraordinarily courageous. I mean, it just sounds like you had, from the get-go, belief in yourself in, in a really good way unbelievable but but it was courageous but only in retrospect like although you know i mean if you would asked me then i would have said i'm gonna make it or whatever that phrase was but i don't think i really knew it but i knew that i was going i was did it i mean yeah i think when i think that i showed up in new york city at 17 that's crazy you know i mean it's crazy and this new york was crazy then i was living on the lower east side and you know we were so scared to walk anywhere. I would, you know, we'd go out at two in the morning to 
to buy bread from the local bakery and mm-hmm. that was dinner you know that was dinner and lunch and, yeah um yeah it was crazy well it took a lot of courage to leave high school it takes courage i mean it, it's not the choice that most kids make it takes a certain belief in yourself to think that you're going to be able to succeed but again it wasn't the confidence wasn't there yet the confidence came only after i had really really learned how to do it took me a long time to really get a hold of acting it was very elusive to me in terms of the craft for a long time. And by the way, the thing that that completely brought it home for me was this book called On Acting by Sanford Meisner. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they say you can't learn it from a book, but I learned it from a book. And I read that book and whatever page it was, it was talking about the as if, it's the magic if or something they call it. And it allowed me to understand how to inject all of the pain and all of the difficulties I've had in life into my work. And once I figured that out, it was like a key. And then I started to work really shortly thereafter in terms of, you know, I mean, and, and a couple of years later was Northern Exposure. And by the way, I believe that about coming from a book, I know it sounds crazy, but for me, Stephen King's on writing taught me how to be a writer. I learned how to be a writer yeah. reading that book. It's, it's my Bible. Isn't that funny? They're both called on writing and on acting. Yeah, that is funny. Um, but that's my Bible. And it really was sort of, it changed everything about my approach to writing. Okay, so how did the whole Northern Exposure thing happen? Because obviously that was a life and a game changer. That was uh, an audition in New York. And uh, I felt particularly comfortable doing it. And uh, I never forget, like, I started to early on, hyper-prepare for auditions once I started to know what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And I never forget sitting in the in the waiting room. At, it was at Universal on Park Avenue. And um, a couple of my friends came in, and they were both hung One was hungover, and the other hadn't looked at the material. <laughs> and I knew it inside out. And uh, I always think that's, that's... Sometimes I don't necessarily think I'm the most talented, but I sometimes think I might work harder. And that, oh. that has got me really far. And uh, I went in and read, and they really liked it, and it grew. And they uh, made a, a test deal for me to fly out to L.A. And I flew out to L.A., which was so cool to go first class. Mm. And they put me in the Mondrian Hotel, and I went to the test at Universal, mm-hmm. which was really just reading in a room with the executives. And then they wanted to take me to the network, and that was at CBS. And um, I went in, and it was a lot of girls and some guy and me. Mm-hmm. And about an hour into mixing us with different girls, they sent the guy away. Aww. So I was like, shit, I, wow. I, got, I knew I had it. Wow. And then they brought in Janine, and, uh, and they kept us in there for a long time. Mm-hmm. And then we, we were the last two to leave, and we got in the elevator to leave, and I looked at her and said, you know, it's you and me. And she told me later, she just thought I was trying to hit on her, so she <laughs> kind of blew me off. And I went back to the hotel, and I got the call. And uh, I never forget, I started jumping up and down on the bed because I was out of debt. I was about 30 grand in debt for some reason. Wow. And in one instant, because it wasn't a pilot, it was eight shows. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is very unusual, and it was a summer replacement series, and I just was screaming, I'm out of debt, I'm out of debt, I'm out of debt. <laughs> and uh, How old were you when that happened? 29. It's like the, um, the outliers thing, you know, 10 years to the day. Wow. At what point did you know that not only were you going to get the eight episodes, but did you know it was successful? Like when you were doing it, did you know, hey, this is going to, this is good. This is, this is going to happen. I knew it was interesting and I knew it was, it wasn't like TV that I had seen before. I didn't know it necessarily would become the cult 
phenomenon. It did, but right. I knew it was. I knew we were onto something interesting for sure. Did life change for you when people started to know who you were and you're getting tables in restaurants? Like, how how did that affect you when you started to have stardom? Yeah, you know, um, I mean, I started being treated like a star as soon as they picked up the second eight. You know, all of a sudden I was getting limos and private jets and flown around and, you know, and, and treated really well and uh, started to get a little bit of recognition on the streets and, um, you know, photo shoots and talk shows. And, you know, so that all kind of kicked in pretty quick. Um, I dug it, you know, I was really into it. I felt like this was kind of where I was headed. And so it kind of felt like I wore it well. But, but again, I think I probably acted more uh, I think I acted like I knew what I was doing, you know, versus the fact inside I had, you know, I was just kind of going, holy shit, it's a <laughs> private plane. You know, but I would act like, uh, the same thing that happened when I lost my virginity, actually. I, I convinced the girl, the girl didn't know that I was a virgin. And I, I, I had fantasized, obviously, about it so much and that I knew what I was doing. So, you know, <laughs> I never even experienced my own virginity because I acted like I had, you know. <laughs> That's hysterical. Okay, so all the success is coming at you, and you're you're young. You're 29. All the this is going on. You're in limos and private jets, and because I know you to be a very humble and gracious human being, was this who you were back then? Did you have some sort of spiritual awakening along the way, or was that always who you were? Uh, I think it became more. Um, I mean, I was inside for sure, and I think I um, I certainly got lost a little bit in in it for a minute but not too long you know the good news was i was in seattle so i think if i were in la or new york Mm -hmm. i would have been in a lot more trouble because you know i was kind of removed from the the world of of it a lot of the year Mm -hmm. um so i would drop in for you know a day or a week or whatever and you know kind of uh, you know realize that my life was different but up in seattle i was just you know working Right, right. And so then the movies started happening and working with Redford and the bucket list and you're doing Mother and you're doing all this varied work and you're getting other TV. Well, then you leave Northern Exposure. Now, at what point did, did music become important to you again? What, at what point did that happen? Well, in my 20s, I, I was playing, I was studying photography and playing a lot of music because, you know, it was either that or drinking. My dad was an alcoholic. I was worried about becoming an alcoholic. Um, and uh, so I just kind of put a lot of energy into those those things. Um, you know, I started studying guitar, and um, I didn't start writing music or anything until about eight eight years ago. Were you, were you playing out in clubs when you were in your twenties? Did you did you? No, not at all, not at all. And so, what kicked off you starting to to write music and to get into that aspect? Of I was it? doing this show called the The Whole Truth, and uh, it was right after Numbers, and uh, it was a ABC show that only lasted about 12 shows and uh, we, we were shooting on the Warner's lot and uh, it, was, it was the year Conan O'Brien started doing his TBS show and it was on the lot at Warner's and they said they were going to put a camera in his waiting room and anyone from the lot could sign up for slots and go and they would broadcast it on the on the internet and so the PR people said always oh, because I always have a guitar and they were like uh, you, know, you should write a song you should do something. And, and, and I was like, okay. And they were like, you know, but we need it in two hours. <laughs> so I, I wrote this kind of, I just took a basic blues progression and, and, uh, added some lyrics that were appropriate to the show and did it. And it worked. And I thought, holy shit, I wrote a song. Um, and 
that started me on the journey of writing and and also performing out. And so I start again in, in the same way I've done this a pattern um, for good or bad, where I started performing out and I was terrible. <laughs> and I was really bad. And I but at this point I knew it. I said, "You're going to suck. Not you might suck, but you are going to suck." <laughs> And you have to be willing, to, if you want to do this, because I started to feel like, you know, I, I, I developed, I'd written movies, I made, I directed a movie, I direct, you know, I had a lot, I was, I was, you know, the frustration of development is, is, is really mm-hmm. frustrating. And the, the autonomy of music where you could write a song and perform it was something I was really digging. And I have this desire, this need to express mm-hmm. and express myself and, the, the the music was seemed like a way to do it where I didn't have to get permission or I didn't have to negotiate or mm-hmm. just do it. And so I started doing it and I would film it and I would watch it and I would realize I sucked, but, <laughs> but, but I don't suck anymore. You know, I'm okay. I can hold my own with any band in the world. You know, I mean, I, I'm not saying you I can play as well. You opened for Mickey Dolan's I mean, in my living no, room. <laughs> right. But I can hold my own, you know, I can get up there and play. And, and also the song started to get good. And I, I hooked up yeah. with Carlos, mm-hmm. who was my teacher and Carlos we Calvo. started writing, mm-hmm. and uh, and the, you know, and then we started, you know, we put a song on the Fosters, and and uh, we're writing a lot of songs with TV in mind, and um, and I play, you know, I have, I travel with guitar, I play every day, uh, that, you know, usually there's not a day that goes by that I don't play. There's a lot of fearlessness in your story, Rob. With with that too, just being willing to to know that you're going to suck and to to push through that. Um, this seems to be the through line for me with your life. Your career is is an absolute fearlessness, um, which well, I really I think respect. I've become, I've become more and more because as you know, I've built on it, and so by the time the music thing came up, I was conscious of what I was doing. I was fearless because it's not to say I wasn't filled with fear and doubt and dread, and mm-hmm. and but I also was able at that point to give myself a pass because I knew that I had to give myself a chance to learn. It. And the problem was, you now I was kind of well known and. And so people would be seeing me in there, and I just said, I don't care, you know. And yeah, I, I am somewhat fearless at this point, but it's but it's been an evolve. I've gotten, I've become more and more so. It didn't, it didn't necessarily feel that way. I know it probably didn't feel that way as you were moving through it, because the only difference between someone who's afraid and somebody who isn't is that the person who isn't is moving through their fear because we all have the same fear i think so it's just pushing yeah. through it so it you know, sounds fisher, fisher took me to a it wasn't called it wasn't s but it was like an s thing in in, in about 1980 um uh there was something called the actors institute in new york that mm-hmm. was a bunch of s people started and so it took aspects of s and injected into acting and, and there was a, the first thing was one of those four, three day intensive, um, deprivation oh, wow. workshops uh-huh. where you did all these things where you confront your fears and you talk about it. And I was really young. It was a lot of older people. And, um, it opened my eyes to that. I think about the, you know, taking risks and mm-hmm. now I kind of get off on it. And so how did you transition to directing? Did somebody hand you an opportunity? Did you seek it? Did you push for it? Was it given to you? How did that happen? Well, as, as Evan Handler so eloquently said, I wanted to direct about himself. Mm-hmm. He wanted to direct ever since he'd been directed. <laughs> and uh, so as I said, I was studying photography. I actually studied photography as a kid. My dad had a dark room. And, and uh, I think in retrospect, I was learning how to tell a story with the visual, you know, with, with pictures. And... Um, as soon as I got on Northern Exposure, I, I'm a 
bit of a gadget geek, and I, I just started playing with those cameras because I was allowed to, you know, because I was a star of the show. So, and I, I hang out in the camera room more than anywhere with the with the tech with the camera guys, and you know, I started learning, and then I started studying filmmaking and listening, watching the Criterion discs and and the, the behind the scenes and the makings of and reading about how you know how film was made, and and uh, I got in my contract to copy the dailies so I could study the dailies and and uh i started uh thinking about directing then and so i i could have directed on northern exposure but i opted to, to not because i didn't think it was the best way to learn you know um i wanted to do something that i wanted to see if i could have a vision and get it on the screen and i did it and um it was a short film uh that i actually made here where i'm sitting under the auspices of new york stage and film at vassar wow. and it ended up um through Bob Redford getting into Sundance. And um, that led me to get financing for my feature, and my feature uh, called Maze, uh, starring Laura Linney and, and me by default. It was supposed <laughs> to be Leah Schreiber, but Leah had to get a paying job. And um, <laughs> and then that was it. You know, once I, again, it was the same kind of thing. Like, once, by the time I directed, I knew what I was doing. I, I knew it. I mean, that short film was a good, solid first effort. It's like I knew it. I could be, and at that point, now I had a, a fair amount of experience on set in the fray, right? And I knew what I was doing, and uh, and now I've you know just continued to learn and and grow and and practice, um, and uh, it's a part of my life. And so, is there anything that still calls you that you haven't done yet, or is there something from that that you're already doing that is your passion at the moment? Well, what's turning you on right now? I have a couple projects that I've developed um, from the ground up that I want to um, star in and, and produce, and uh, you know, possibly direct some of them, um, or even direct. I've directed myself a fair amount at this point that I could do it. It's not preferable, but mm-hmm. uh, sometimes it makes things move easier, faster. Um, and uh, so those projects are really, I would really like to get uh, on a series that I was uh, w- one of the key uh, players mm-hmm. in terms of deciding the, the destiny of the show artistically and, um, and get a run on that. I'd love to have a run doing something that, that I created. Um, I love that. That's kind of, the, that's what I, that's what I'm, I'm hoping. And I have a couple of things that are, they have some traction, Excellent. but it's uh you know, it's a long, bloody journey. I've had, you know, I've worked on projects for eight years only to see them fall apart, you know, <laughs> and that's, that's no money, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's just, and, and so I'd like to do a couple of those projects. It sounds excellent. Okay, so before we let you go, Rob, do you have a guilty pleasure? Um, well, I mean, in terms of like watching TV, like I watch Empire, that's my guilty pleasure. Okay, so why does it make you feel guilty? Why are you guilty about it? Um, I don't know. I just kind of feel like it's, it's a little, you know... I don't know. It's it's just kind of it's meretricious or something, you know. Um, I don't know. It just doesn't feel like you know, like Bloodline to me is you know a real piece of work of art. And, and I'm not saying Empire isn't a work of art, but mm-hmm. it feels like a guilty pleasure to me. It feels like, um, or even Nashville. I'll watch that as a guilty pleasure, mm-hmm. um, which I'm trying to get on as a director now. Nice. Well, excellent. I know you have to run off and, and go mentor some, some writers. Rob, thank you so much for, for taking the time. I really appreciate it. It was wonderful to talk to you, as it always is. Uh, you're so sweet, Vicky. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Have a great night. Take care, Rob. Take it easy. Bye-bye. So, Justin, for me, the takeaway with Rob 
is, well, first, the first thing that he said that really struck me, well, he said a lot of things that really struck me, but something I'm taking away is get in the door. It doesn't matter what you're doing. Do anything. Just be around it. So whatever field that is, like if we're in Hollywood um, and we want to be in the business, you know, he was definitely saying just do it. Be there. Do whatever you have to do. You know, paint set, do whatever you have to do. And, and I love that. And I think it works for everything in life. And I love that on acting, Meisner's as if informed his work. And that was the key that sort of clicked things off. And I know for me, as, as we talked about with Rob, uh, Stephen King's on writing did it for me. Is there anything that for you, Justin, that like sort of was the key in the lock that kind of changed what you did, how you did it? I don't necessarily think that's how it was when I got, I mean, because when I got into this, uh, it was just kind of like I wanted to do this, and so I started going into that field. Mm -hmm. But what got me into more of, like, focusing on a certain part, Mm -hmm. um, like, I had started in uh, reality TV mostly, doing all those kind of shows, and uh, it just was kind of like... It's very grueling and you're just kind of like, I, I really want to do something where I can spend a lot of time, make my work the best it could possibly be, mm-hmm. which is movies more than like, and TV shows now, because mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of heavy quality uh, TV out there. And so there was a movie that I saw that's called uh, The Raid 2. And when I saw it, I was just like, uh, I want to make something that sounds like that. Because wow. the sound was so incredible. And um, it just that pushed me to be like, what do I, who do I need to talk to? Where do I need to go? In who do I got to fuck this? in this town to do re- <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so yeah, that's what, uh, that movie basically got me to move on to the next level. Very cool. Um, yeah, I, th- I think everybody has something, hopefully they have something that sort of unlocks the door and sort of leads them to, uh, make sense of what they're trying to do and sort of gives a, a formula for how to move forward in something. I, I hope, people get that I know it makes a big difference for me and when I when I didn't have that before I read on writing I was kind of all over the place and trying to find myself and it was like then once I had that those tools I don't have to consciously focus on it they're just there and I have them and I I have my way and I think I I got that from Rob too that that's the way it is for him with his acting I also got from Rob fearlessness totally unafraid to know that he was gonna suck and get up on a stage and play music in front of people totally knowing that he was gonna suck and knowing that he had to do that to get to the other side. That takes balls. And it's not that he wasn't afraid. He said he was afraid, but he did it anyway. And I think for me, what I've learned is that the difference between a brave person and a fearful person is the brave person walks through their fear. We still have the same fear. We all have the same fear. We all have fears. But it's just that walking through it. And what gets us to do that, I wonder? Why are we able to walk through the fear? I think it's when we want something enough. I think it's when passion drives us that, you know, they say like, you know, a mother can lift a car if her baby is under there. It's like we find the strength when it's important to us. Great takeaways from Rob Morrow. Great show. Thanks so much, Justin. You've been listening to Vicki Abelson's broadcast, The Road Taken. We'll be here every Tuesday night, 6 o'clock Pacific Time, 9 Eastern Time, 8 Central. And yes, there are, Justin just reminded me, you can find us at at Vicki Abelson on Twitter, at Vicki Abelson 
on Instagram, Vicki Abelson on the Facebook, and VickiAbelson.com on the internet. So say hi, check us out, follow us or me, and I'll send you to Justin, and we'll do that thing there. Have a great week. Hi, I'm Vicki Abelson. I wrote a book called Don't Jump. Andy Stone is my heroine. And she was addicted to everything pretty much except heroin. Oh my God, oh yes. She just totally captures the excitement of, of rock stars. And famous athletes and famous comedians. Sort of an insider's view from the outside. The warmth and wit of Vicky's writing knocked me out. In, in a good way, not, not like Cosby. Too soon? Vicky wrote a book? Vicki Abelson's long-awaited new book, Don't Jump, is finally here. Don't miss it. Available on Amazon.